talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Backstreet's back, I guess. Uh, you know what else is back is Concession Street. Now, it never really went away. Concession Street, they didn't just close it up during COVID, but it's uh, things were difficult for everybody. Everybody, including Concession and all the businesses along there. And I must say, during the commercial break there, I was just pulling up, because we're going to be talking in just a second here, about the Concession Street Fest. And I was just pulling up the Concession Street BIA website and looking through the menus on a few of the restaurants, including two of my favorites, La Luna, which is up there, which is, I'm not paid by them. They are the best restaurant in Hamilton. I'm sorry. And I'm not even sorry. That's just true. We, we eat at La Luna all the time and uh, the Dirty South, which is fantastic. Anyway, I'm starving here now looking at these recipes so or menus. So let me move along before I start drooling into the microphone and bring in Christina Geisler, who's the executive director of the Concession Street BIA. Christina, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is the this is the real problem of me like trying to prepare and getting totally waylaid and getting into menus and stuff. I, I seriously, I, I am now absolutely starving looking at this and want to make a run after the show. And you know what? I can make it worse for you because Dirty South just opened up a rooftop patio. So on top of the fact that you've got sensational food, you've got some of the best views of the city. So and of the street. Mm. So uh, tell me this, Christina, there, COVID was awful for everybody. And I don't just yeah. mean the virus. I mean, the business opportunities, the business climate, everything. And yet yeah. I was talking to someone two days ago, totally before I knew I was going to be talking to you who had been down to Concession Street. And they said, you know, Concession is really cool. Why have you guys been able to survive, first of all, and then come back seemingly thriving? You know, I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. Um, our businesses really dug deep and they really thought about their customer bases. Every business is different, but they all did something that really resonated with their customers to adjust to connecting with their customers, whether it be go online or have an increased social media presence or amp up their takeout or their curbside pickup. And a lot of the things that they've done actually have proven to be so successful that, interestingly enough, that many of them are going to stick with a lot of those models. So I think it's been an interesting experience for a lot of the small businesses. Yeah, you know, the, the, the cliches are cliches, but they actually come from somewhere at one point along the way. There was a, there was a, and necessity is the mother of invention. I know it's a cliche, you throw it out there, but it, it actually, it, it means something. It actually came from somewhere. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, I, and, and it's a testament to the small businesses. We, and it's been amazing. I mean, even through all the difficulty, and it absolutely has been a difficult two and a half years, especially with the ups, ups and downs and everything that has come with it. But we have seen over the last couple of years, well over a dozen businesses and more coming, opening on Concession Street. So it's been a really interesting uh, growth that we have seen. Um, and as the BIA, we have worked really hard to try and stay relevant, stay connected with the community, with Hamilton, letting them know what's happening through social media um, and organizing things that we can as much as possible to draw people to the street. Yeah. And you know what? You do point to the success stories. There have been some that have failed as well. I mean, that's that's the same everywhere. It's just it's been very, very difficult the person that I was talking to a couple days ago, though, who mentioned concession, and I've heard this from other people, one of the things that people talk about is, you know, you can go and buy food or buy stuff, lots of places. They talk about the feel. What's the, what is, how much of being successful as a BIA or as a part of town is having a, and it's really hard to describe, but having a feel to where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Concession Street, I've always described it as a commercial corridor nestled in a community. We're very much connected to the neighborhood, to the surrounding neighborhood. Um, and that has really driven, I think, some of the success and some of the survivability of some of the businesses. Plus, we've also done a lot of work in adding a lot of murals. So we've done a lot of work in trying to beautify the street. So it's not just about, like you said, coming to get a plate of food, but it's becoming this really colorful and cool area to be. Um, we have some of the best views of the city. The Mountain Brow is just steps away. It's, it's just a great place to be. Is the vibe part of the attraction then? I think I think I think everything is contributing to the overall uh, 
growth and changes that we've seen on Concession Street. Absolutely. And now we're really fortunate, as I think we're going to segue into, we're so excited to be able to bring back in-person events. And I think everything is just another step forward that's just adding to the growth and the excitement and our tagline, it's happening here. We really do believe it's happening here on Concession Street. And just before I get to those events, one more thing just about the idea yeah. of the murals and everything else. Is that something that happened naturally or did the BI, was there an organized campaign saying, you know what we got to do? We got to get together and do something. Or was it just everybody started doing it? Uh, well, the BIA has driven a lot of the murals. Some of the businesses have done the murals themselves, but we actually started this a few years ago, and this was pre-pandemic. It was a little bit in response to some of the graffiti and tagging that we were seeing across the city, um, and we thought, well, we've got these walls, these blank walls that are just targets for uh, tagging and graffiti, and there seems to be this funny code among street, even along uh, with the street artists, that if there's something on the wall, they move on to a blank canvas. So we had already started and we just kept that momentum going through the lockdown and just have built this collection of over a dozen murals that really makes it a really interesting place to browse and, um, and explore. We are a few days ahead of time, but uh, people can put it in their calendar. June 11 is yeah. uh, Concession Street Fest. What is Concession Street Fest? So Concession Street Fest, it's been going now for 25 plus years. Obviously, the last couple of years, we've had to take a hiatus because of um, restrictions. Um, but in January, we started planning for it cautiously. Um, and part of the caution that we're taking is we've made some measures to scale it back somewhat. Uh, so we have booked lots of entertainment. If people go to our website, concessionstreet.ca, you will see everybody from kind of on the kind of our unofficial headliner, uh, Logan Stotts is going to be performing. Uh, we've got Hashi the Mouthpiece. We've got LT the Monk, the Vaudevillian. We've got dancers. We've got drag queens performing. Um, Hamilton Aerial Dance is coming and they're doing, um, they're doing stilt walking. We're going to have a fire eater. It's going to be a really great party. But the thing that we are doing a little bit differently this year is that we're not inviting outside BIA members, vendors, to set up on the street. There's a couple reasons for that. One, we wanted to keep the street, although it's closed to traffic, we wanted to keep it open so people have a little bit more room to spread out um, and social distance because we're not quite out of the woods yet. People are still getting sick. And there's still, I think we can all agree, a little bit of community apprehension and getting together in really tight quarters. So this will give people some room to spread out. And at the end of the day, as a BIA, it's our job to support our BIA members and our small businesses. So 95% of the businesses are going to be set up outside with vendor tables, bringing in their suppliers to set up vendor booths. So that will fill that void. Plus, we've got businesses like Dirty South that have a food truck, so we'll have food trucks. It's going to be a great day. Um, we've got lots, lots planned and something for everybody for sure. Uh, June 11, Concession Street Fest. You can make a note in your calendar right now or put it in your phone or whatever else. Christina Geisler, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for having us. And I, I absolutely meant what I said, by the way. La Luna, uh, they don't pay me a dime. Best restaurant in the, in the city, maybe in the country. If you like Middle Eastern food, there is nowhere else you should be going. This is probably going to surprise some people. It always does. Because there is always a perception, I think, in a lot of people's minds that crime is rising. And the one of the leading causes of that is youths. Now I feel like I'm in my cousin Vinny. Youths who are causing this increase in crime in a lot of cases. However, Hamilton Police this week came out with their latest crime numbers. And youth crime is down in this city. Down 14% from last year, they say. And down consistently the last four years, it's been going down. Again, this flies in the face of what a lot of people would expect. I want to bring in Frederick Dryden. He's executive director and founder of Liberty for Youth, which engages at-risk teens through mentorship to help them to better their life, to stay out of trouble, to do all kinds of good things. Frederick is with us. Thank you, Frederick. For, appreciate your time today. Hey, it's an honor to be here. How are you doing? I am great. You, listen, when I, when I say these numbers, when the police say these numbers... There are going to be people who say, yeah, I'm not really sure I buy the numbers. Do you believe these numbers are true? Yeah, I, it, it, these are very accurate. We work with the police, Hamilton Police Services specifically. Jason Tannison, who does a lot of the research over a youth justice crime, uh, he provided annual report every year. These are public reports, and we have a strong collaboration. So they're, they're accurate. 
And are these numbers, so the, the next question people might have is, okay, so are they doing something different? Are, are they not, are police now not charging kids or young people and therefore there's just as many kids getting in trouble, but they're just de deferring them or pushing them somewhere else other than the criminal justice system? Or do you believe, no, really fewer kids are getting in trouble? Well, you know, I think multiple things are going on, but I think that the real key thing is that from from our uh, point of view is that, you know, I think Hamilton, there's great collaboration going on. We have amazing, uh, you know, leadership in Hamilton, a lot of organization, a lot of youth ministries. And I think that just it's really a lot of this, the positive things are happening from collaboration. Okay, so explain, how is it working that if we're going to go with this, and I'm, I'm believing you and I'm going to take the police then absolutely at their word here, if the numbers are down, why? What, what are those things that are happening that are leading us in this good direction? Well, I think they will have the report to lay out all the details. Again, that's, that's their report, it's not my report. But I know what we've seen is that there's great, there's a lot of leadership, a lot of good things are happening, for example, the Hamilton Youth Violence Planning Committee, and that's a, a great initiative led from City Hall, from Hamilton, and we're a part of that over the past year. You know, Chelsea and Irene, they're doing some great initiative addressing uh, uh, a lot of crime issues, a lot of racism around different uh, youth, and just so many things that's coming out of this Hamilton Youth Violence Planning Committee. They have a symposium coming up uh, next month, and there's just a lot of great initiatives that I see that's coming out of this, right? Um, you know, so much other collaborations uh, that's going on in the city, whether it's to Threshold School of Construction, where, you know, a lot of kids coming out of incarceration that we work with them, that they go directly into a school trade program. They get paid uh, and get into trade. So, again, there's so much collaboration that's happening in the city. There's so many great organizations, whether it's the city kids, the John Howard, the Living Rock, I feel that, you know, it's just great leadership that's happening in Hamilton. And these initiatives that you're talking about, are most of them things that kids would go and seek out? Or are most of these initiatives where people like you and your group and others would go and seek out the kids? How, where, how do you, how, where is the connection made? Well, I think it's multifaceted, right? Again, you know, we have a great probation uh, assist service here that we partner with probation. And a lot of these things are provided through probation to youth that are uh, whether incarcerated or youth on probation, right? So a lot of these services are there, and the probation officers can easily give them the option to select or choose which one they want to, unless they're court-mandated and they have to attend the particular services. And then you have other organizations at Liberty here we're constantly, we're constantly pursuing the youth. I think that's one of the things we, we, wherever they are, we pursue them. We go pick them up with our van. We get, we bring internet service to them, laptops. We constantly pursue them. So, so it's multifaceted, but I think, again, you know, lots of good things happening. Uh, when the fourth shooting happened last uh, last summer in Ward 5, I was so impressed with Councilor Brad Clark. He reached out again to us and some others to initiate a, 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 pro a program to get guns off the street. So, again, great initiative by Councilor Brad Clark. So lots of good things are happening. And, and I think it's just great leadership in the city. And I think, Liberty, we only play a very small role uh, again, just a very small role, and we're just a part of that, again, that collaboration of the many different good organizations that are happening in Hamilton. I know that there, there's all kinds of answers for this, but when, when kids do get in trouble, the, more often than not, when you interact with those kids, did they get in trouble because they were bored or because they were poor and needed to do something to steal or whatever else to, in order to, they felt to survive? Was it peer pressure? Is it social problems they're having what, what what's the around here what's the main issue that we can look at and say this is the cause of a lot of this stuff when it does happen i'll say all the above that you just listed and many more no two situations is the same you know uh people come from different backgrounds different culture and they're facing so many different challenges right but no two situations the same honestly so it all depends what's happening. Sometimes, you know, we got kids who, you know, their father uh, was on was incarcerated. It's systemic. Or we've got kids who I, I work at kids where both parents were physicians, and uh, kids felt like mom and dad just didn't pay them enough attention, mm. and they did something to get back at mom and dad, and then they got into a vicious cycle of incarceration, and it became institutionalized. So, no two situations are the same. 
uh, young people are facing many challenges. Uh, you know, we have gangs that are recruiting young people from a very early age. Uh, there's so much predators out there. So honestly, it's just, it, it, it's just it, it, no two situations are the same. So do you believe then that if we are seeing for the last number of years this improving, can it continue moving in this direction? Uh, can it continue to get less and less and less as far as the number of youth who are involved in crime? Or do we hit a, do we assume that there is a number that's always going to be there and we're getting close to that? Or, or can we be optimistic? Well, you know what? For those, for those of us that are in, uh, in, in the youth services, youth military helping youth, that is the end goal. And if we don't have that mentality, we need to get out or remove ourselves. But it can get better and it will get better. But again, I think it's with great collaboration. We have a lot of fantastic organization in Hamilton, great leadership. And I think when we collaborate and work together, I think that's when we'll get stronger and you know we can be more aggressive towards creating hope amongst young people. That's what young people need to see. When they, when young people see light at the end of a tunnel, you know, you know, honestly, you know, for example, when we're working with youth, you know, we tell them if they can put down their gun and pick up a welding gun, they'll make more money. Scott, mm. you know, underwater welder makes four hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, right? So they just have the wrong gun. <laughs> You know what? That is Frederick. That's a great line. That that is definitely the line of the day today on the show. No one's going to do better than that, but you're absolutely right. And it's a great point. It's a great point. And I listen, I thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to us about it today because it is a, uh, it's a great point. I appreciate the work you're doing to help the kids who are out there. Thanks for this. And thanks for seeing Hamilton. And we thank for the great leadership. Take care. Bye-bye. Frederick Dryden from Liberty for Youth. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We are still talking about what happened in Texas earlier this week. 21 people now, at last count, deceased. Uh, You know, I mean, look, these are all horrible. But you know when you have to say at last count how bad these things really are. Because the numbers just seem to be keep going up. And um, it's it's a horrendous situation. There's no... There's no candy coating it. It's a it's a disaster. It's tragic. It's all the words you want to apply to this. The question, though, becomes in the wake of this and other shootings and other incidents and other school events and everything else, the question is always, well, what can we do about it? And is banning guns, is simply saying, let's ban guns, does that solve the problem? I want to bring in Dr. Richard Thurman Barnes. He is an assistant director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center an associate professor of the Urban Global Public Health Department at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes for us. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate getting the call and for you um, reaching out to the Gun Violence Research Center on this really horrific and um, and tragic events that have occurred, I guess, over the last 10 days or so with Buffalo and mm-hmm. Texas. Exactly. And, and, you know, as I said off the top, and let's, let's just go right to the, the, the common answer. Every time something like this happens, and it happens too often, everyone says, just ban guns, and that's the end of it. Is that the end well, of it? Is that a solution? Well, let me say this. I think, I, I think for folks who don't live in the United States, that comes up. But we have a very strong gun culture. Uh, to say the least, here in the United States. So banning guns, I don't think that gets at the problem, and here's why. Right now, if you ban guns today, there's still um, enough guns in, in in households and owned to give every person that lives in the United States one gun. And we still have 60 or 70 million guns left over. And that includes giving individuals who've been born during the time that I've been on this call with you a gun also. So we have more guns than people right now. So it's really hard to say banning guns would be the answer. Um, and also, I don't want to people to think that who might hear this in the U.S. that I'm a proponent of taking away folks' guns. That's highly political here, as you probably already know. Yes, But sure. where you have as many guns as we have, you are also going to have more gun violence. And that's well, what we're we ha- here in the U.S. We had up here about a year ago, we had a number of chiefs of police from an association of chiefs of police testifying at a parliamentary committee. 
And what they said is up here, and we don't have the exact same problems you have down there, but they're not entirely separate. They said, look, it's not the legal guns that are causing most of our problems sometimes, but mostly it's the illegal guns that have come across the border that have been smuggled in, that the the people who aren't going to be responsible, they have these. And that that becomes a a sort of a... um, a discouraging thing. It goes to what you were just saying. So even if all the people who have legal guns were to turn them in, you're not getting rid of all the guns. It's still a problem. No, no most definitely. And it really depends on what side of the coin um, we're talking about, right? When you think about the mass shootings and early reports uh, about the uh, mass shooter in Texas was he, he went and purchased his gun in the last six months legally. Right. 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 A lot of times when we're talking about mass shooting, these are individuals who purchased their gun legally, not in every instance or every inst- not in every instance or every case, but a lot of times they are purchasing their weapons legally. Illegal guns, same issue here. Um, you know, uh, you look at the cities and what's happened in the last two years uh, in the United States. It is access, right? Great access to illegal firearms. But once again, that goes to, you know, our American gun violence problem access is really the key in both instances, right? In those times when uh, you have a mass shooter or in when you have the illicit firearm ownership as well, access to firearms. So professor, that, that being the case, we don't want to just say, well, there's no answer then there's nothing we can do. So let's just let everything happen the way it happens. Nobody wants that to be the answer. So no, what is the answer or what is a, what is a reasonable step then that might lead to some kind of answer? Well, I think there might be a couple. One is comprehensive background checks. So right, right now I'll say down here, since you've been saying up there, um, (laughs) down here, um, if you go into a, a, a licensed firearm retailer to purchase a gun, they'll run a background check, right? But if you go to a gun show, somebody's transferring it to another person, some states don't require a background check. So that's a big loophole, right, for people who otherwise would fail a background check to get their hands on a firearm, right? So yep. it's a huge problem. Yep. And also background checks can be calibrated, uh, meaning you can set them to look for certain information, you know, and I think one of the things that, that background checks could look for uh, is local information on an individual. So, for example, uh, if that person has been investigated for, for bias or been charged with a bias crime, right, against a group of people, Jewish individuals, black people, right, threats against a school of some kind might give you a better or full picture of an individual's um, you know, capacity to do something bad with their firearm. Um, the other thing is we have something in New Jersey called extreme risk protection orders. Not every state has this. Um, so it's, it's for individuals who are at risk, and it's a risk-based assess- assessment. It's a temporary and preemptive protective order that authorizes the removal of the firearm from individuals determined to be at risk for committing gun violence against others or themselves. So a family member or somebody can petition a court for this order. And it, it's a temporary removal of a firearm from somebody who is uh, either stressed or in a situation where they may harm themselves or somebody else. So these are just minor things that can be also, they can have a great impact. On well, let me ask you about a major one. And I, I wish we had more time. We only have about 30 seconds, so it's unfair, but I'm going to ask anyway, what about the idea yep. of way more significant penalties for those who are caught with illegal firearms and say, look, uh, first offense, you're going to jail for five years. I mean, I'm throwing something out here, but what if we were to say, we're going to make this such a significant penalty if you are caught with an illegal gun that maybe it's a deterrent? Well, enhancing penalties hasn't been shown to be a deterrent, Right. I mean, we've had the death penalty. Uh, right now, if you get caught with a legal firearm in New Jersey, it's already five years. Um, also, that's a law like that is going to disproportionately impact people of color, too, right? And we just have to be careful on what what policies we're putting in place uh, and making sure that they are connected to the outcomes we're trying to achieve. And I'm not sure that gets us there. Yeah, it's a, it's look as you say these are this is so complicated. There are things that can be done, but um, I appreciate you coming on because, as I say, every time something like this happens, and as we've said, it's happened too many times. 
the initial reaction yeah. is always just ban guns and then the problem goes away. It's it's not it's it's not really that simple, unfortunately. I wish it was. It it's not really that it's simple. Not, Dr. Richard Thurman Barnes uh, from Rutgers University. Really, I very much appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We in this country are facing a bit of a problem. It's not a new problem, not as far as I know, but it's something we've, I mean, we've been knowing, that we've known that it was coming for a while. By 2027, five years from now, there will be just three working people for every senior in this country, which should lead to a pretty obvious recognition of what the issue is going to be. Seniors get a pension. Seniors often have more health issues. Seniors who have contributed all their lives are now contributing a little bit less in their retirement. It's the next generation of workers who now pay the bulk of the taxes to cover these things. And this is, as I said before, this is the social contract. Today's seniors did it for seniors before. Today's workers are going to do it for today's seniors. Today's workers, someone's going to do it for them down the road. You, 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 this is what you do. This is how we make it work in this country. But what if the numbers are not large enough? If three and one is not large enough, what do we do? I want to bring in Ben Eisen. He is a senior fellow in fiscal and provincial prosperity studies and the former director of provincial prosperity studies at the Fraser Institute, who joins us now. Ben, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. If I explain that right, and if what I'm reading is correct, how, with the numbers now being so close together, are we not setting this up for the entire house of cards to just collapse on itself? Well, we, it, it's a huge public policy challenge that we're facing, and I think that you, you summarized it very well. Uh, we've gone from having a few decades ago about seven uh, working-age people for every senior in the country, all the way down to about three and a half today, heading to three in just a few more years, and then all the way down below two and a half after that. So this is a real challenge uh, for the Canadian economy and for public finances. Uh, so your question of what we do uh, about it, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of ch- challenging components to it, but uh, certainly... Uh, part of it is thinking about what we can do to b- boost productivity in the working age population and also what we can do to help make it possible for younger seniors who want to work and remain in the workforce uh, to do so. Because right now they face barriers, uh, disincentives for doing so, uh, and, and other, other factors that make it harder. So it's a big question, but there's a number of things that are going to have to happen uh, across the public policy spectrum to try and address uh, this challenge that governments across Canada are facing. There are two elements of this, and I want to ask you why on both. Is this a re, is this happening because seniors are living longer, so we've got more of them who are still alive, which builds the numbers? Or is it on the other side? Are we not having as many people in the workforce? Why are the numbers closing so quickly? That, that's a, a great question, and the answer is, is both. Uh, we have a, an aging population, as is known. We have a very low, large cohort uh, of people aging into the senior demographic and then uh, into the older years of the senior uh, demographic, and they are living longer, as you suggest, which is contributing on one end. And then on the other, we have low rates of population growth, uh, fewer people entering the lab- labor market to replace people leaving it. So the result is uh, that shrinking ratio of um, working age people to, to seniors, and relatedly, a declining participation rate in the overall workforce uh, across the entire adult population. So those two things add up, and you have fewer and fewer people out of all of the adults working, uh, and it creates real challenges for public finances. So what do we do with this? I mean, the, 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 the obvious result some, or response somebody will say is, well, you raise taxes to help pay for this. I'm not sure that those people who are the working class in this are going to be supporting a lot of politicians saying, you know what, I think it'll be a good idea to boost your taxes by 15% to pay for those who have gone before. I, I don't see that as being a winning campaign platform. So what do you do to try and raise the money? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's not only uh, it's not a winning campaign platform. I think you're right, and I also don't think it's the right thing for the Canadian economy because uh, what we need to be doing is boosting its productivity as much as we can in the working age population, uh, which is hindered if you increase taxes too much. Uh, but aside from that, aside from the productivity issue, um, one of the most important things we can do is we can look at the public policy barriers that exist currently uh, for older older Canadians who want to work from remaining in the workforce. Uh, even something as simple as several years ago, there was a 
suggest, in fact, it was going to be implemented. It was uh, passed into law and later repealed to increase the eligibility age for pensions for OAS and related old age security, excuse me, from 65 to 67. That was reflective of what's happening in other countries. It's reflective of the realities of Canadian demography and the fact people are living longer and having longer retirements. Um, so that would create a stronger incentive for people who want to to remain in the workforce uh, at those ages, provided you give lead time and you don't catch anyone surprise right be- by surprise right before retirement. There are other policies that make it very hard. The rate uh, at which people are taxed and have benefits clawed back if they're seniors for remaining in the workforce uh, make, make it very hard for people to have any incentive to keep working uh, beyond the age of 65. So I think that we need to look at what we can do to boost productivity in the current working age population while also taking a hard look at what we can do to create the right incentives for people who want to work beyond 65 to do so because the Mm. the nature of uh, senior life is changing and more people are able and willing and wanting to work but have disincentives for doing so. Does this make a case for massive new immigration? If we were going to say, look, if we don't have enough people in the workforce, let's open the borders and bring in hundreds of thousands of new immigrants who are of that age group to flood the workforce and bring in more tax dollars. It's a really interesting question uh, that you raise, and immigration is already playing an important role uh, in shaping the rate of population growth in this country, which would be negative uh, in the absence of immigration. But uh, so... It can be certainly part of this is a solution to the challenges we're facing. The key is integrating people successfully, uh, is whether or not we have systems in place to allow them to be a, people who come to this country to be as productive as possible, to have uh, to work in fields where they're educated and trained and things of that nature. So you have to have a lot, get a lot of things right. Uh, you have to get housing policy right so that the, uh, mm. we don't, you don't have these people who arrive facing prohibitive costs. Uh, as they try and enter housing markets across the country. So you have to get investment, right? You've got to get infrastructure right. So absolutely, immigration can and should be part of uh, the solution to what we're talking about, but you have to make sure that you're creating an environment for success for the people who do arrive. Yeah, it's uh, it, 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 there's nothing... We've been talking about a bunch of topics on the show today, and shockingly, none of them have easy answers, and this one doesn't either, unfortunately. It'd be really great if this was just a super easy one. If Ben could have come on the show and <laughs> solved all of our problems, but... Um... I'm not going to blame you, Ben. It's, it's a great, it's a great point you brought up, and it's a great warning sign that you've thrown up there for people to be aware of because it is a problem that's looming. Absolutely, and th- thank you for not blaming me uh, for not having the solution. I think recognizing the challenges. Is start not going to, uh, not going to go after the messenger. Absolutely not. Uh, ben Eisen <laughs> with the Fraser Institute. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Bye bye. So here's the the great debate that has been going on in our city for some time now. The city council has voted not to expand our urban boundary, which means we, if we're going to continue to grow, we, you can't grow out, so we got to grow up or in. Question is, how do we do that? Well, one of the answers, one of the suggestions has been we intensify by changing the zoning of established neighborhoods and allowing homes that right now are single-family dwellings to potentially be split into duplexes or triplexes or quadplexes, fourplexes, however you want to describe it. The question is, And the debate is, do people want that? Now, whether they want it or not, it may happen. But if you live in one of those neighborhoods, is this a good thing for your neighborhood because you can now have more people in the house? Look, you can now use it as a rental property. You can pay your mortgage. Or is it a terrible thing that people don't want because now there's going to be four times as many people on the street and four times as many cars and backyards are noisier and all the rest of the stuff? Well, let me bring in a guy who you probably see his signs around. You've, you're you familiar with his name. He's on buses and he's in shelters and bus shelters. And he also does a show here on 900 CHML, uh, the Golfie Real Estate Show on Saturday mornings. His name is Rob Golfie. He joins us now. Rob, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you, Scott? I'm good. I see your face all the time. I feel like we have a relationship going on here. There's, you know, I see you so often. But uh, I, I listen, apologize is this... for that. <laughs> <laughs> hey. You know what? Those of us with faces for radio, we get it. Um, Is this something that you think that we'll get to the people who are buying in just a moment, but the people who already own homes in the city of Hamilton, is this something people want to suddenly be able to have the opportunity to split their homes and maybe rent part of it out or whatever else? Or do you think this is something people are going to go crazy against because they don't want to now have way more people in their quiet neighborhood? It, it, it will hurt. It will hurt certain neighborhoods, um, and especially on the mountain with the bungalows, because a lot of the bungalows have side entrances. 
and 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 front entrances so they could use the side entrance as as a basement entrance into the into the basement now it it is going to be tough like vancouver i remember uh a, a good friend of mine moved out there uh, I, it's got to be over 20 years and in order for them to afford the house they have to have a rental unit in the basement and I think it's just the way it's going to go. So, for instance, um, like the what one the, the like the the downside of it it is definitely the privacy. Like you're not going to have the privacy. Parking is going to be a major issue, uh, and depend especially downtown. You know how like you have to almost sometimes uh, everybody's rush, racing to get home to get that parking spot. And if they don't get home by a certain time, they're not going to get that parking spot, and they may have to go a couple of blocks over the park. And the other negative thing is the absentee landlord. Like if, if you get an investor that's going to put a, a second unit in, in the house, he's not going to take care of the property as much as somebody that actually owns and lives in the house. So, unless, they're, unless they are living, unless they're using it as a way to pay, as you say, pay their mortgage, they live upstairs and they rent out the basement. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and because of this housing crisis that we have, the, the, the cost of, the, the, you know, of houses, what they're, they're going up in value, I mean, we need a third income. Like, I mean, like, when did dual income start? It probably started in the in the late '70s, and now you know, like, you need two household incomes to to afford the house. You actually now the way housing prices are, you need a third income, and that third income will be uh, a, an apartment in the basement or 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 the laneway uh, uh, apartment in the back. Um, and it's the only way that uh, people can afford a house to keep going. And it's just how long do we keep going? It, it is going to happen. They've been talking about it, and uh, but it's the way it's going to go. But the benefits, the benefits, it, it, it it's going to help uh, the housing stock, right? And it's going to uh, it, 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 people gain additional income if they, you know, if they're retiring. Um, it'll it'll keep the population strong in in certain areas. And it will help also businesses. Um, the it is it is a, a, a situation that is going to happen. And and if you think about it, Scott, you have no idea how many illegal apartments there are in Hamilton. If we took everybody out of those illegal apartments, we will have a major crisis. So they need this. And not I'm not I'm not saying that I'm accepting this. I'm just saying that if we don't go out and uh, out outside the urban boundary we they're they're going to be doing this and they have to they have no choice to do this well yeah robin there's like look at the options we can either go out and we've decided we're not going to go out or you can go way up and build tall buildings but it seems like every time somebody wants to build a tall building in this city i'm reading about people complaining that they don't want that so this really seems like it's the only other option here's the here's the question though about it if you're okay so you let's say i'm talking to a bunch of people now who own homes what percentage of people, when you are showing a home, when you're when you're working with a client, what percentage of people would you guess? It's only a guess. Factor in the character of the neighborhood when they buy a home. Oh, it's huge factor. The, the factor of the neighborhood is a huge factor. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like you, if you really want to look at a house as a buyer, um, look at it. Uh, sometime after five o'clock or six o'clock, because that's how you know how many cars are parked on that street. Anytime during the day, if you're looking at houses during the day, people are at work. You're not seeing what the true, the true, true uh, presence of uh, the vehicles on the street, what's going on. And uh, so if, if, if you can't find a parking spot just to look at the house that you're, you want to buy, how are you going to find a parking spot for yourself to, to live there? Especially but if but, right, but if you are if you are saying that most people, the majority of people, are considering the the character of the neighborhood when they're looking for a home, if they've now spent their life savings on a property, partially because they wanted the neighborhood as it was, I'm not sure it's going to be a popular decision when the character or the population, whatever of that neighborhood, drastically changes. Oh, it, it won't be. You're going to see people moving out, but it's going to be a slow transition. So people won't notice it as much. Uh, the people that are currently living in these neighborhoods, it, it, it's going to t- it's going to be a slow transition that's going to happen, and and a lot of them will probably be moved out of the neighborhoods. And it's just going to it's just it's kind of one of those things that you don't notice happening, and all of a sudden you wake up one day, five years later or ten years later, and you're like, what happened to this neighborhood? And uh, it could be like. 
you know, where you're living now and you move out and five years later you come back and you're going to look at the neighborhood and go, what happened here? Like, why, why is there so many cars in this neighborhood? And, and, and that it'll, it'll be a, it'll be a slow transition, but the investors, they're going to, they are going to be, uh, they're going to be buying up properties like you would not believe because, uh, and then duplexing them because now they can afford to, uh, get the rental income to pay for the mortgage and taxes on the properties. So does that mean then we got to run, but does that mean then, cause some people will say, well, this is going to drive property values way down. I, I'm looking at going, no, this may have the opposite effect because now if you can use it as an income property, the property values may go way up. It, it will, especially if, if they're nice properties, they're done up and they have an in-law set up like the laneway ones, like uh, downtown. Um, I, they, those property values will go up. If you have a secondary resident, uh, like not, not a basement apartment, but an actual secondary resident on the property, it will add value. There's no doubt about it because I, I mean, people will look at it and say, Hey, look, we could live here and our, my mother or my father or, or both can live in that, uh, uh, little apartment in the back. And that is going to definitely add value to the, uh, the property. People will be looking at it as a bonus. That is Rob Golfie. You can hear him here on CHML. You can see his signs around. If you want to buy a house, there you go. You, I'm sure he'll sell you a house or sell your house for you. He probably won't turn you down. Uh, Rob, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing Thank this. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. They tell us that uh, if you want a great thrill ride tomorrow... Top Gun Maverick opens and all the reviews say this is the greatest thrill ride out there. Just an amazing movie. Nothing could be more thrilling with the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns. I take issue with that. Way more twists and turns these days in the CFL negotiations. There was a negotiation. There was a deal. The players rejected the deal. They came back with another one. And now, even as we've been on the air today, we hear there is agreement with the bargaining committee, not necessarily the players yet, on this, and they'll be voting on it tonight. Want to bring in John Hodge, CFL insider and reporter for Three Down Nation, who joins us now. John, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Well, I'm okay. So let me ask you, as we talk, are the fingers and toes crossed and are you throwing chicken bones around and whatever that this time this might actually happen? <laughs> you betcha. And I'm sure fans across the country are, are doing the same. But the good news is I do believe that this will get ratified and I think it will get ratified tonight. I think it should be settled away shortly. Um, and then in the next few hours, uh, that this thing will be done. But absolutely, I will also admit, I was confident the last <laughs> agreement would get passed. So take that with a grain of salt. Well, listen, if this one doesn't get ratified, the bargaining committee is going to get on a barge and go to Greenland or something. Like they're going to just, they're going to leave the country. <laughs> I got to believe if this doesn't happen, because this is like, as you say, I, nobody saw that last one coming where they said, no, all of a sudden it's like, wait, what is that? What happened? So do we know anything at all for for sure? I mean, we've heard rumors. Do we know anything at all about what the players took back or what the new deal offers, or do we know anything about what might be different? Well, to me, the, the two reasons that the initial tentative agreement was shut down by the union was the ratio and the ratification bonus. Let's start off with the ratification bonus. As part of this new tentative agreement, the league has offered 1.25, or at least in the range of $1.25 million, to the players as a ratification bonus. That would pay out approximately $3,000 to each player who is, who is voting. And we know from the first vote that 30%, at least that was what was claimed online by some of the voting players, 30% of eligible players did not vote. And so if I'm a player who didn't vote the first time, who all of a sudden says, wait a minute, I, I can get paid $3,000 just for voting yes, I know that I'm going to find <laughs> 30 seconds out of my day I need to pull out my phone, hit yes on my electronic ballot, and submit it. So that's one reason I'm optimistic. The only reason I would maybe be a little bit pessimistic is the ratio has really not changed. The proposal that was tentatively agreed upon last week is, you know, 90% the same as it is now. The only difference is in the old agreement, the as of 2023, three veteran Americans would be able to rotate up to 49% of plays in a game with the team's seven Canadian starters. That has been reduced from three players to two, 
but the CFL has the right to up that number from two to three by 2024. So I still think it will get ratified, and I think the bonus is the biggest reason why the ratio did not change very much. You know, the the bonus, and I shouldn't laugh. I mean, look, we'd all love to get $3,000 put into our pocket. Um, However, even as you were talking, I was doing some very quick math. That's that's roughly what Patrick Mahomes makes in 30 minutes sitting at home doing nothing. So, you know, (laughs) it's it's all relative, right? That, uh, that, That a deal may have been held up by 30 minutes. Patrick Mahomes has probably spent more time in the bathroom today and earned that money doing that than these players have held out for. I mean... It's a different world, I understand for sure, but boy, it's it's context. And and you know, when you're playing in this league, three thousand dollars is not an insignificant amount of money, clearly. No, and I do think it's important to remember that you know the the twenty twenty season uh, was canceled, right? And and players exactly. were able to take advantage of cues to a certain extent, but they didn't make anywhere near what they would have otherwise made. Twenty twenty one, right? The the CFL shortened the season due to the pandemic, started it late, and teams also made the decision to spend to the salary floor rather than to the salary cap. So players have missed out on a ton of money the last couple of years. And so as much as you're right, we might laugh at, you know, uh, at the end of the day, a $3,000 bonus, you know, swinging a bunch of players from voting no to voting yes. Um, I do think that is important context because, you know, many people outside of sports have suffered financially as a result of the pandemic and CFL players are certainly no different. Well, and as I say, you know, like if you or I right now, someone walked up to us and said, would you like $3,000? I'm not going to sniff at $3,000. At $3,000 is $3,000. Now we're not in the Patrick Mahomes or the Josh Allen world, uh, you know, where, where that's nothing to them. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not insignificant. It's just in context. It's sometimes hard. Uh, very quickly, before we go, John, the ratio, as you talk about the number of Canadians, the number of non-Canadians, deep down, do you really believe the fans really care about how many Canadians play in this league? Some, I mean, maybe you say absolutely yes. Fans really, really care. And on the other hand, you may say they say they do, but they really want to see the best football, whoever that is. Which side do you fall on that one? Well, to me, those things are not mutually exclusive, right? I mean, if you want to talk about the best players, and that is always the argument I hear against the ratios. Well, I just want to, I just want to watch the best players. My my response to that would be, well, the the best players now, or or the best players five years from now, right? Andrew Harris started his CFL career as a Canadian junior football league player. He never even went to a youth sports school. He, he didn't go, he certainly didn't play in the NCAA. This is a guy who never in a million years would have made it out of his first training camp competing against top talent coming from the NCAA. Yet he's going to be in the hall of fame, right? Brad Sinopoli would be another one. He's going to be in the hall of fame one day. He won a heck Crichton trophy at, at the university of Ottawa as a quarterback didn't make it in the CFL as a quarterback, switched to receiver, of course, was not the best receiver in his first training camp. Heck, he was just learning the position, but eventually went on to become an all-star three times in uh, in Ottawa, where he played his university football. So, you know, do fans care? I, I don't think they necessarily care um, about the guys who are, are backups on, on special teams or, you know, if, right, you're, if right. you're living in B.C., you know, you might not care that someone – you know, grew up in, in rural Quebec and attended Sherbrooke. However, I do think that having Canadians in star roles is, in, is important. It does make a difference have, for sure. Exactly. And you can't have those stars unless they get the chance to develop early in their careers. John Hodge from Three Down Nation. Keep an eye on Three Down Nation. Keep a listen here. As soon as we know something, anything, we will let you know. Uh, John, thanks for the time today. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. By the way, that music you were just hearing, that is the work of Andy Fletcher of Depeche Mode, the keyboardist for the 80s synth band, died today, very sadly. Oh, and he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Alan White, the drummer for Yes and for John Lennon when he went solo. He died today as well. And he's not the only one. Because you've been hearing all through the day, Ray Liotta, the actor from Goodfellas, he died today. 
which is why we're bringing in our first guest this hour, Bill Briou, TV writer, critic, pop culture writer. He does all kinds of stuff uh, from Briou TV. Um, Bill, how are you today? Appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, Scott. I'm well. Thank you for asking. So when we all day today, I have heard people describing Ray Liotta as Ray Liotta of Goodfellas. Is that how you would have described it if you had to put it into one sentence? Yeah, it's unmistakable. You know, he made such a powerful impression in that movie. Uh, it, you know, when when you look at it, so many other roles he did and the variety of things. Uh, you know, it, it, that field of dreams. You know, I forgot. Yeah, yep. he's Shoeless Joe Jackson. Um, yeah, that's what scenes. I would have gone with. Yeah, that's yeah, what I would have I mean, been. I would have said field of dreams, but you know, Goodfellas for sure. He, he like that was a that was a role that he. He sort of became, I guess. He became both, but you, you can't imagine that role of Goodfellas without it being him. No, and to sort of not just hold your own, but to kind of, you know, nudge uh, Robert De Niro off the screen and, and some of the heavyweights like that. Pesci. Joe Pesci, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that that takes a good good chunk of an actor there. And uh, uh, Leota was uh, very seldom disappointed. You know, often he was better than the movies he was in. Uh, recently that many saints of Newark, the David chase, yep. uh, sequel, prequel, sequel to, uh, the Sopranos. And he, you know, even at this, apparently there's two or three more projects he's just shot that have yet to come out. So when you say, I think of Ray Liotta as either the guy from Goodfellas, or I say, I see Ray Liotta as the guy from field of dreams. Does that say more about him or more about us? <laughs> Which well, one of those we cling to? I think it says that uh, he had a, a more versatility as an actor than uh, a lot of us give him credit for because Goodfellas was just an overpowering performance. He just looked like a killer in that film, yep. like he's a yep. mob guy with a creepy laugh. And uh, Liotta had a look, right? He and he was from New Jersey. You know, it was he was authentic. So, um, but you know, uh, we forget that uh, as a younger actor. He was a handsome leading man in, in other roles. But if you read Twitter today, Lorraine Bracco and almost everyone who ever worked with him basically singling him out as one of the most uh, pleasurable times they had making films with, was with Ray Liotta. And you know what's so ironic about that is that when you look at him in almost any movie, I mean, I can't think of the, he looks like the guy that if he was your dad and you did something at the dining room table, he didn't have to say anything. He would just give you that look and you knew, oh man, I'm in trouble. He had that, I don't know what it is. There's something about the Ray Liotta face that was terrifying, but not in a horror movie kind of way. Just like uh, there's something about him that makes me a little scared. Oh yeah. He, he looked like your time was up. You know, if you were, <laughs> you don't want to be in the front of this guy if you've done something wrong, but uh, a very effective actor. And yeah, as you mentioned, these other folks dying today, we, we live in an age, Scott, where um, a lot of our heroes in music and film and sports uh, are dying. You know, they're just at that age, but Leota at 67, certainly uh, not someone I would have expected to hear was dying today. No. And, and let's branch off from Ray just for a second, off Leota for just one second, because everyone, again, has been talking about Goodfellas. You seem like a perfect person to ask about this because you write about TV and film. Why do mafia, why do mob movies do so well? And when I say do, I don't necessarily mean at the box office, although they can. So many of them are so well done and they become so engrossing. Why does that particular world lend itself to movies? You know, it's sort of like the question, why are there so many cop shows on TV? And it's, you know, basically it's because it's about life and death and, and the uh, stakes are so high. Uh, and I think that people are, are just seem to be endlessly drawn to those situations. And uh, ever since The Godfather, but going right back to the 30s and 40s with Warner Brothers and all the gangster movies, the classics with Jimmy Cagney, uh, that's always held people's fascination, just uh bad guys right often that's the yeah. best role in film well because i was thinking about this today and i thought if you were to do a list and I, I know there have been thousands of these lists made i haven't made one personally i don't know if you have but if you made a list of the hundred greatest movies ever made godfather of course would be in there and godfather 2 would probably be above that um Goodfellas might be in there. Casino might be in there. The Irishman mm -hmm. more recently might be in there scarface very well could be in there 
Yeah. Uh, the Untouchables, maybe Once Upon a Time in America, Donnie Brasco. I mean, it goes on and on and on. This is just, for some reason, this lends itself to such great performances. It does. Uh, although I wouldn't put, you know, The Irishman, that's about 15 hours I'll never get back. But uh, <laughs> the rest of them pretty good. Some the, other thing, the other thing about Ray Liotta, people forget this, he was in two Muppet movies. You know, like he's played this killer <laughs> in all of these films, but he's also singing and dancing with Kermit and Miss Piggy. So that's uh, versatility in an actor. Well, and you know who he reminds me of in that way then is Christopher Walken. Because, oh, yeah. you know, someone who can look absolutely terrifying and creepy beyond words, and then all of a sudden he's doing Saturday Night Live or doing Muppets or something, and you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Walking for sure. The two of them in a movie together, I don't know if that happened, but uh, they certainly would have been uh, formidable. Just before I let you go, I had not, I know that you mentioned, and I looked it up today, and you're absolutely right that Ray Liotta had been doing a bunch of projects that were not even out yet, but... It, it. I hadn't seen him in a ton of big stuff lately. He had this period where he seemed to be in everything and then wasn't. Is that just the natural ebb and flow of any actor that you have a really hot period and then you're not the same? Or had he sort of fallen out of favor, do you think? Well, you know, I think with um, some of his roles, especially uh, Goodfellas, he was so typecast as a mob guy there that they probably hurt him in a while or kept him out of the uh you know casting sessions for some other things uh and yeah careers do ebb and flow um you know i don't know if these new films are uh going to be big hits and uh, but i do think the irishman for as much as i was joking about it that's martin scorsese that put him back in the a-list i think you know it it, it gave him a, a big uh, role in a, in a very modern film Netflix, you know, all that other kind of exposure, and I'm sure that's helped him now, up until now. That is uh, Bill Briou. You can find his stuff at Briou TV, B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. Go online. Uh, great work there. Always great stuff about television and other things. Bill, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking through the show today, and you're going to be hearing in just a moment again, um, some stuff from what happened in Texas with the shooting in the schools. Just it's it's horrendous stuff. But among calls for gun control or gun bans, there are also calls today for something else. Because after this happened, there was stuff that went on social media, like always happens. I mean, social media is an absolute slop pit of detritus and stupid stuff. I don't know how to. If I thought that one through, I could have come up with something that sounded a whole lot more classy, but it's just social media is where truth and reality and other things go to die and wallow around in their own misery. And there was a bunch of stuff that came out about the shooter and about the shooting and about this and that and the other. And so in addition to calling for gun control, people are saying, well, we got to do something about misinformation. Terrific. What? Let me bring in Carmi Levy. He's a technology analyst and journalist. Love having Carmi on here. Carmi, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, as I say, we hear this and we hear people say, do something about this. So, <laughs> Carmi, what is the what what are we to do about this? And I like I'm not I'm not I'm not mocking the idea that we would love it if there was less misinformation around, but what do we do about it? Well, I mean, if you look at the way social media platforms have been designed, just look at what they're called, social media. By their very definition, they're designed to accelerate communication between large numbers of people. That's how they exist. That's their very business model. So anything that would slow that down kind of goes against what social media is all about. It's about creating that town square. It's about creating that energy, that exchange. That was sort of the you know, the idealistic kumbaya, uh, you know, message that we all heard when Twitter was released, when Facebook came out, when they all sort of were born. Um, but obviously, when you leave things that open, that opens it up for abuse. And you're right, I, I, I love, you know, slop pit of stupid stuff. That's exactly what it is. It's, it is where truth and reality go to die. And, and left unchecked, misinformation can easily eclipse real information because nobody's checking and nobody's flagging when something is questionable. Uh, so how do you, how can you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you know what's real and what is not? There really is no way to know. 
Uh, Twitter, of course, and of course, and then if you in, invoke some kind of moderation, then you you're, you run the risk of being accused of censorship. So there are two sides to this. There are those who say, you know, it should be completely wide open, for total free for all, uh, which is kind of what we have now. And then there are those who say we should be using artificial intelligence, machine learning, human moderators to rein in the worst abuses and at least provide some kind of control so that you and I, when we go online, we're, we stand a reasonable chance of seeing the good stuff and not the bad stuff. Um, but of course, then, you know, you run the risk of being accused of censorship and, you know, who decides what uh, gets pulled or who decides what gets exactly. prioritized. That's exactly. The thing. No, we're never going to make everybody happy. That's just the way it is. Well, exactly. And, and the irony here is that the gatekeepers sometimes are the ones who are spreading misinformation. I'll give you an example. Uh, it, back when the trucker protest, and I'm not lobbying for the trucker protest, that's not what I'm talking about here, but when the trucker protest was going on, one example is that there were a number, you can find this online, a number of politicians who spoke vigorously about the person who closed the door into an Ottawa apartment building and tried to burn the place down and tried to arson the place. We learned after that by the Ottawa police that that person was arrested and had nothing to do with the trucker protest, but you had all these politicians, the very ones saying we're against disinformation, giving what essentially was disinformation. But if you were to say, but politicians can't have their voice on the social media platforms until it's all been vetted, they would say, that's crazy. You can't do that. So your point is absolutely right. Who decides, how do we know who determines that it's true or not? Because what might feel true at one time isn't true later on. It's an impossibility. It absolutely is. And, and all of this has to happen in real time or near real time, because once it's out there, it's out there. And so by the time the Ottawa police would have weighed in to say, hey, this had nothing to do with it, the, you know, the misinformation is already out there. And that's sort of taken up all the oxygen in the room. You can't really go back and issue a correction because this is what people have already read. It's what they believe by now. Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the challenge. And you're almost trying to police the ocean. There's just no way to do that. Huh. Um, so, and who decides? Well, the, the Twitter and the Facebooks and, and the Snapchats and, you know, all the social media players of the world, they, own, they built the technology, they own the technology, they're the ones who are tweaking the algorithms and it's up to them to decide uh, what gets amplified and then what gets suppressed. And, uh, and, you know, do we have visibility into how that process works? Absolutely not. You know, the technical side is one thing. There's another one, and I don't want to get terribly deep here, Carmi, like I don't want to be a philosopher because I'm not, but... I really believe another issue here is that we have small l liberalized the concept of truth. We hear people talk about my truth. My truth is not truth. That's an opinion. My truth is opinion, but we now give things the same weight as actual truth. And so we've kind of taken the idea that, well, if you believe that it's true, it's true to you. So who are we to say then that you can't put that on social media somewhere because that's your truth. And it's not my place to tell you that it's wrong, even though in a lot of cases it's wrong. Yeah. What did Stephen Colbert call it? Truthiness. Um, truth. you know, exactly. Exactly. Truth. It's, 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 it's truth through the lens that you believe to be true. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're going to have to at some point come up with a definition, a proper definition of what misinformation is. And it's, it's more evil counterpart uh, disinformation. Uh, and we're going to have to have standards, you know, just like, traditional news organizations have had since the beginning of time um, about what constitutes truth and what constitutes uh, an untruth. Uh, and those standards will have to be incorporated into these technology platforms. Of course, Twitter, uh, just this week, released something called a crisis misinformation policy. Uh, and right now, they're only rolling it out for traffic related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, but they're saying that they could use it for other crises going forward. And basically what that does is when, an, when misinformation is identified, it is then labeled. So instead of just showing up in your feed, you'll have to click through it to see it. It'll say, this has been identified, it's tagged as misinformation. And if you wanna view it, uh, you have to click this. It's sort of like what they do now for objectionable content. And then in the background, the algorithm will dial it down. It won't spread it as quickly, it'll suppress it so it won't show up in people's feeds. 
if it's been identified as misinformation. So we have to have universal standards and then we have to have technologies in place that allow this to happen, not just on Twitter, but elsewhere, uh, so that we stand a reasonable chance of at least seeing the majority of the truth so that misinformation doesn't completely cloud out the proper information that we're looking for when we're going online, trying to figure out and separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, and again, it's a great idea and it's a great theory, but once again, like we can go through on every side of the political aisle numerous examples where something at one point was thought to be true. So if you said it wasn't true, well, you might be marked as misinformation or disinformation, but then it turns out that actually was true. So they've now said what you said wasn't true. And then your misinformation label is misinformation, right? And we get in it like, yeah. it's crazy. It's it's now before we got to go, and I hate to do this to you, we got to go, but is this really other than scope? Is there really any difference between what we are talking about and people who would go to the coffee shop once upon a time and sit there and just tell stories and tell rumors. Is it really any difference other than the scale? It isn't. Uh, you know, this is the new electronic town square. Uh, the, the difference, though, is exactly, as you said, one of scale. It's because those, you know, in the past, it would take a very long time for those untruths to filter through the town square and you make it over to the next town and all that. Whereas now, uh, misinformation can literally circle the globe in seconds. Um, and so it's, it, you know, the, the, the cost of misinformation is much higher now than it's ever been, but you're absolutely right. It had its roots in that old town square or the coffee shop. Um, it's just now much bigger, much faster and much scary, a much scarier problem. Yeah. It's not new. Misinformation is not new. It's been around oh, since yeah. Joseph Gables back with the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's say G Gables with the Nazis, that was his whole job was to spread misinformation and disinformation. If you want to go back to there, it's just, it's, you know, we have different ways to do it these days. Exactly. And so how do we, how do we then improve the tools to slow that spread down? That is the $64,000 question. Carmen Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.